Hello and welcome to another episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Today we have Hector Mason, investor at Episode One Ventures. Episode One were early investors in Zoopla and Betfair, so we're delighted to have Hector on. Thanks for coming on, Hector. Thanks, James. So you've made a very quick rise within the VC world. Can you explain your career background and how you got into VC? Yeah, sure. So it probably wasn't a totally conventional route. So I had a couple of businesses before. One was at university, found a way to take advantage of all these sign-up offers from the bookies. And so had a built-in network of people feeding me these referral schemes and ended up making enough to fund uh, my first business, which was a student jobs marketplace, on-demand student jobs. So you could find a student to clean your kitchen at two o'clock tomorrow or something like that. It never really worked. It it didn't really get off the ground. There were all sorts of issues with the tech, but I learned a lot of lessons, of course. Then went to all my mates were moving to London, really. And so I thought I wanted to be in London too. And so I set up a a small tech consultancy going around to people's homes, managing their Wi-Fi, setting up their emails, managing a few businesses, IT. Then decided that wasn't necessarily for me long term, turning up to people's doors with a rucksack and a laptop. To sort out these things. So ended up getting a job in innovation consultancy while running that tech consultancy on the side. Did the innovation consultancy for a year, decided that wasn't for me either. We, we were coming up with new products and services for huge incumbent corporations who move incredibly slowly and you're one step removed. You think it's going to be like working with startups and it's just not because they don't move at the same pace and there's not the same level of excitement. So I then sold the IT business to a slightly bigger tech consultancy. And at around the same time, I was on the mailing list for episode one, because years ago, I'd been looking at how to get into VC, but wasn't actively looking, but saw that episode one were um, looking for an associate. And I actually passed the email on to my housemate to start with thinking, I'm just going to stick it out in consultancy. There's no harm to be done from that. But anyway, the weekend came and I thought, no, I really am not enjoying this job that I'm doing at the moment. I should apply and be proactive about things. So I ended up applying. F1 actually rejected me to start with. And they said that they'd had a huge volume of applications from people with lots of previous VC experience, previous founder experience. And so I just wasn't quite the right fit. And anyway, I replied to them saying, I'd urge you to reconsider for blah, blah, blah reason. And I turned up at their door unannounced <laughs> to try and persuade them to, to take me. And then a few days after that, I had an email back saying, due to your persistence, we'll give you a phone interview. So I had the phone interview and it went from there. And I ended up really getting along with the team and convinced them that I was the right person for the job. So that's how I got into VC. That's awesome. There's definitely a few lessons in there. What was the reaction when you turned up unannounced? <laughs> Yeah, this is where the story kind of falls down because I think I got lucky. So I rang the buzzer and said, oh, hi, I'm Hector. I've applied to the associate role. And they, I think, fortunately said, oh, actually, we have a strategy session today, so you can't really come up. But anyway, I'd managed to tell my name and hopefully it showed them that I was eager to, to get the job, which is probably a large part in in how I got it ultimately. But I didn't have to go through the kind of awkward rigmarole of going up and having a tour of the office and asking some stupid prescribed prescriptive questions and rehearse questions. So I think it was a good outcome really. Yeah, yeah. Persistence is often a trait championed by VCs when looking at founders. What traits do you look for in founders when you're considering an investment? 
Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And it's so debated, I think, because the, the obvious things are tenacity, focus, drive, ambition, all, all of these things, and also sales ability and ability to convince. I, I have a sort of theory that VCs over-index on sales ability because VCs, like anyone, are susceptible to being persuaded by persuasive characters and just being a persuasive character doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be an amazing operator of, of a huge business. And so I think there's a tendency from VCs to apply too much weight to founders' sales ability. But that being said, sales ability is a really strong signal because they'll be able to attract the best talent. They'll be able to onboard early customers, convince early beta users to, to use them. So it's certainly not a bad thing but i think that the risk you take by focusing too much on sales people is that you end up overlooking amazing operators who aren't necessarily fantastic sales people and the way that i think this whole effect manifests is that at seed stage you basically need to be raising on the promise that your business holds and you know how well you can sell that vision then at series a there's a bit of that and there's a bit of metrics you need to be able to you need to have proven a few of the promises that you made and then at series b you're really relying heavily on metrics and so by series b what you as a founder lack in persuasive ability can quite happily be more than made up for by the metrics that your business is showing and there there is a chance that vcs are investing in amazing salespeople who aren't building as, as great businesses as could be built by worse salespeople who are amazing operators so that's a sort of theory that i have and there's it's by no means the truth but i think there's a risk in that yeah no it makes sense and do you guys have a thesis around team size do you ever invest in solo founders or do you like to invest in broader teams yeah i think the sort of consensus seems to be that there are funds out there who do not invest in in sole founders which i think is is odd i guess it is a it's a risk that you can mitigate against if a founder decides that their heart's not in it anymore then if it's a sole founder it's very unlikely that you'll really recover any money or certainly make any return on it we're not focused on that at episode one we're not too worried about size of team i think the one sort of data point is that it's going to be more impressive being sat in a pitch meeting talking to three super impressive people than it is going to be sat in a meeting talking to one impressive person. It just makes sense. And of course, you've got a diversified risk in that sense. If one founder decides the heart's not in it, you've still got to take the ship forwards. And the other thing is it's really rare to have a founder who, one person who has all of the skill set to build a great business. And it can be fantastic to have someone really well incentivized in the form of equity so to have people who are really well incentivized in the form of equity who are skilled in different disciplines so typical would be a ceo who's an amazing salesperson and an amazing strategist and a cto who is probably also a great strategist but is very technical and is an engineer for example so to have people who are incentivized in the way that founders are incentivized managing the key disciplines within the business can be really valuable rather than having to hire people who will feel less bought into the whole vision to head up key aspects of your business. So it's, I think it is an advantage to have more than one founder, but it's by no means a necessity. Yeah. And outside of team, 
what else do you guys look for in companies? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we're a B2B fund. Our fund two is 60 million pounds and we invest at seed stage and we pretty much invest in B2B only. We tend to invest in companies that monetize through businesses rather than consumers. We're also software only. We don't tend to invest in, in hardware. So software only seed stage tend to lead seed rounds. The, the reason we tend to lead those seed rounds is because we want to build a, a decent sized stake from early on because we're very hands-on investors and in order to warrant the amount of time we plan to spend with companies and want to spend with them, we have a decent stake at that early stage. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake founders make when pitching to you? Yeah, that's a difficult question. So to slightly flip the question, like answering is the same thing. I think the most impressive thing, and by the way, founders, they need to be doing lots of impressive things in the meetings rather than just lacking any weaknesses. So I think the most impressive thing is when a founder has gone through their pitch from the perspective of devil's advocate and when they have gone through it with a fine tooth comb and they've picked holes in their argument and in their pitch and then come up with really thoughtful and coherent responses to those weaknesses because naturally that, that's an investor's job is to pick holes in the argument and to find reasons not to invest and as much as we'd like to invest in every company we see we just can't we have to pick and choose and so when a founder comes back to concerns with really compelling responses that's just incredibly impressive so for example if we say that you're lacking in this area and they say yes we're aware of that here's what we're doing to fix it and this is once we've fixed it this is what we can do coming back with that sort of response is really impressive and, and so to go back to the what's the weakest or what's one of the things that founders get wrong in these pitch meetings it's when they haven't thought about the sort of risks that are posed to the business because that, that that's just a glaring concern for investors yeah absolutely does that come from lots of pitching and learning what investors are going to ask and then coming up with the correct responses mm. or is it also coupled with great awareness and understanding of the company yeah i think it's i think it's both i think an interesting thought experiment really for founders to do is just to go over their pitch deck once it's once they think it's finalized and to go over it as devil's advocate and pick holes in it as though they're an investor and you could do that i think it's perfectly feasible to do it yourself but otherwise you could do it with someone you trust your co-founder or an advisor or someone like that just so that when investors come up with questions difficult questions you are armed with really convincing responses because it really is those compelling responses that suddenly get an investor leaning in and thinking okay this person means business that they've thought about the risks they know, they have a plan to navigate those risks and the vision is sufficiently large for us to be excited and that's that's where you start getting excited in a pitch meeting and you start thinking this person's on a mission mission to build a huge business and they're going to stop at nothing to build that business yeah absolutely and at seed stage what sort of metrics do you look for do you ever invest in anything that's pre-revenue or do is there a revenue expectation and, and what kind of level is that yeah, it varies. There's a spectrum. I think one way to think about it is there being a spectrum from very execution-driven businesses to deep tech businesses. So the execution-driven businesses are those where there's no particular technical risk and the value in the business is really going to be built on how well the team execute and 
how they go to market and how quickly they go to market, how quickly they win customers, etc. So these are businesses where the tech already exists. It might be off the shelf. Maybe they're putting together some, some simple, relatively simple software, but there's not huge technical risk. So those companies, we might look for very ballpark 10 to 10 to 20K monthly revenue to the company, although it's more about the trajectory than the sort of snapshot in time. So if, if they're doubling revenue every week, then we wouldn't necessarily need them to be on 20K monthly. They might be on 5K monthly. But if there's a clear path to um, 100K monthly in, in a short space of time, that's incredibly exciting. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it may just not be possible for a company at seed stage to have any revenues because they may be heads down in product build. And so a good example of that would be one of our portfolio companies called CloudNC, which is automating factories. And when we invested, it was essentially two founders who were saying, we're going to automate this huge industry, take it or leave it. And when we were doing the customer diligence with these sorts of companies, what we expect to hear is if they can do what they're saying they will do, it will be amazing and it will be huge, but we don't think they can do it. So it then comes down to us to decide whether we really think that the founders can put it off. But yeah, like I say, in, the, in those companies, if they're developing really complicated technology, then it's an unfair expectation to think that they'll have any meaningful revenues. And, and in those cases, it's more about having letters of intent and maybe some POCs and maybe some, some pilot customers than it is about having hard cash coming into the bank. Yeah. Recently, you set up an event called The Seed Stage, which was about bringing lots of amazing companies and putting them in front of investors virtually. How did that come about and how did it go? Yeah, sure. So it came about from in April, we ran a joint office hours. It was episode one and five other funds. And we promoted it and had 300 odd applications. And then we whittled those applications down to about 20 companies who came in and met the various funds. And it was a good day and the companies were, were quite interesting, but it didn't feel really at all differentiated from the multitude of other office hours events and slightly seen by the community and also by founders as a place where people come if they're struggling to raise their, their round through traditional routes. Um, and we wanted to, to get the seed stage to be seen as something where even the very best founders come to raise money for their rounds. So the messaging is, is all around um, you know, pitch at the seed stage to, to generate timesheets and competition for your round, with the aim being to, to attract even the very best founders. Because I think there, there's, so demo days are a great thing after accelerators. And the tagline, as you might have seen, is the seed stage, it's a demo day without the accelerator. Because in my mind, a lot of the value comes from the exposure you get at demo day. The accelerators just aren't right for everyone. And, the, and for many companies, there's no need particularly to go through the program. So that's really the, the vision for the seed stage is it's a demo day without an accelerator. There were 550 investors on the call. And I, I didn't give any detail on sort of the actual format of it, but I pulled together 30 funds and that's going to rise to about 50 for next time. We co-promote the event, drive a load of applications. So we had 850 this time. And then the funds all vote on their top 10 businesses that they would like to see pitch at demo day. I then pull together one of those votes, work out which companies receive the most votes to come and pitch. I think it's something that hasn't really been seen in the VC ecosystem before. 
what's quite good about it is it's a very fair and unbiased and democratic way to approach investors because you don't have to go through warm introductions. You simply apply through a really simple application form and there's little reason. There's little bias to creep in, which is a, a good thing in today's market. Yeah. And when is the next one and when will applications open? So the next one's going to be in April. They're going to run twice a year, October and April, and applications are already open for that. So I'd certainly encourage anyone to apply. There's really no reason not to apply. It's a quick application form. You need to put a a short description into the application and the deck if you have one, a couple of other details, and then the the funds evaluate the application and, and with any luck, you'll pitch it demo day. So twice a year, April and October, We'll see if that ends up being the cadence of events. It, it may end up being more frequent, but we'll just we'll see how that goes. Yeah, awesome. Hector, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great to get your insight into the world of VC and what you guys look for. The seed stage was an incredible event and we're really looking forward to the next one in April. So thanks again very much for coming on. Thanks so much, James. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for getting me on. It was great chatting to Hector. He really is one of the most entrepreneurial VCs we have in the UK. If you are raising money in early 2021, definitely sign up for the Seed Stage event. You can get details either from myself or from Hector. It's a great event and definitely one for founders to look out for. The next episode is with Paul Lindley, OBE, who founded Ella's Kitchen, one of the leading baby food brands. It's a great riding unicorn story and we discuss some of the highs and low along the way as well as how he focuses on the potential for business to do good within society. It's a really interesting episode. Thanks for listening and catch us next time on Riding Unicorns.